excited to talk about fellowship this morning, the, the joy and necessity of fellowship, and it's really a, a hugely important topic facing uh, believers, how we think about fellowship, um, how we find that mainly through the church. This issue, I believe, affects us greatly, uh, even more so today, way more now than ever. This issue of fellowship is hugely important. So welcome to this Sundays in July class. If you feel like maybe you're in the wrong class, you could use that excuse of the donuts, the aforementioned donuts, to just go grab one now and slip out. Uh, there's no, no guards at the door or anything, but we'll let you do that. But for the rest of you, welcome. My name's Jay Lennington. I'm the membership pastor here. I've also taken on a, a role as a, a family pastor overseeing junior high and, and down into children's ministry, so excited for those roles and, and how the Lord will, will use that opportunity. But like so many of you, I'm so thankful for this church. I love this church. I've benefited from this church so greatly. Um, I, I came out in 2013 just to attend seminary. I was a youth pastor in Illinois for just a few years and just knew I needed help. So I came here for, for help in pastoral training, selfishly mainly just thinking about me and how TMS and Grace Church would impact me. Um, but not realizing the impact that grace would have on my whole family, my wife and my, my children. Uh, I think like so many of you, we see that, we get that. Grace Church is a really uh, special place. And certainly so many people at this church have had a big impact on me, the, the fellowship of this church. Uh, so many people pouring into the Lennington's has just been really really helpful, and we're thankful, and, and, and I guess that's why I trust so many of you are here this morning. Um, one, of the, one of the ways this church has impacted us a lot, honestly, is through this very month, Sundays in July, just having a chance to listen to different topics. Uh, we have four children, so a lot of the parenting track stuff has been really helpful for us. Uh, I know there's a lot happening every Sunday, if you know how to be in, you know, seven classes at once, please let me know how to do that. Uh, but we have all those recorded. I encourage you to listen to them. Uh, they're all so, so helpful and really helpful topics being taught on again this year. Uh, but this track, this class is really specifically focused on spiritual disciplines. You may be wondering, how does, how does a topic like this, like fellowship and the church, how does that fit into spiritual disciplines? That, that topic might lack a little of the sparkle or the interest or that initial attraction as some of the other topics being taught on. But as I've already said, fellowship is hugely important in the life of every single believer. And my goal this morning is to try to help you understand just how necessary fellowship truly is and how we can maximize that fellowship. It's tragic when fellowship is neglected. It's incredibly healthy when it's embraced. Hopefully, you're here because you're curious about this topic. What, what joy comes with fellowship? What joy is there for, for true fellowship with, with brothers and sisters in Christ? What does the Bible say about necessity of fellowship? Like, why do we have to do this? Uh, why can't we just, you know, live stream from our PJs? Why this? And this morning, I want to challenge you to think about, about fellowship. Thinking about no matter what church you've come from, no matter how long you've been at Grace Church, 
thinking about this issue, like, what is it? What is fellowship? What do I think about fellowship? Is it just, you know, knowing a few people's names when I come to church? Is that good enough for fellowship? Is it, you know, having certain sets of friends that you get along with really well? I want to challenge you to think about fellowship as, as, you know, something more than just taking a few people out to lunch after service or having people over for, for dinner. All that, of course, is likely to happen, and it's, it's certainly a part of fellowship, but I, I want you to think about true fellowship ultimately beginning with commitment. And if you're like a note person, I would just encourage you to write that down. True fellowship ultimately needs to begin with commitment. Fellowship will only be better and richer when it begins with formalized commitment. There is is joy and necessity that comes with belonging to a local church. I don't think I have to convince you or or argue very long for the incredible benefit that there is to to being around others, uh, especially inside the church. I think most of us get, get that. God God tells us very early in the Bible, it's just, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he puts us into relationship. And especially in the context of the New Testament and the church, he, he puts us in community with others. And it's so helpful and so beneficial. But that fellowship, it's greatly enhanced when we know that, that this specific church, this local church is my church. When we can say that, that those are my people, those are the believers that I'm committed to. And, and I know for a fact, those believers are committed to me. There's something about that that just greatly enhances and enriches our, our fellowship experience. So let's talk for a few minutes about this idea of fellowship ultimately being seen in commitment. Fellowship, and if, if you need an, another word, fellowship may be in its connection to membership. Okay. Membership. People have so many differing views of, of membership. There are some who go to church their whole life um, and they never join a church formally. They never commit to a church in membership. And there are some who, who I, I see it all the time. I'm, I'm on the phone a lot with people who have varying views. And, and in a lot of ways, I think I would connect it to how we view fast food. People view the church like they view like fast food. I'm just going to go to the church that I'm in the mood for. So this Sunday, particularly, like I want to go to this church because I'm in the mood for that kind of worship. So I'm I'm just going to go there or I'm in the mood for this kind of teaching. And so I'm going to go to that church or I'm in the mood to be around these kinds of people. So I'll go there and, you know, like in and out Chick-fil-A or Taco Bell, whatever your budget is. I don't know. It's, be careful with that last one. But, but Christians, they, they tend to bounce around to churches however the mood strikes. We see this again and again. People have differing views about, about the local church, about what it's for, about membership. And again, all this hugely impacts our fellowship. Not only do people have differing views, but, but so do churches some churches don't have a formal process of membership. Others have, have like tiered levels of, uh, of membership at their church, like, like gold members and platinum members. And it's really weird. 
be careful if you can be a platinum member at your church. So there seems to just be a, a lot of good reason for confusion and so many different approaches to ecclesi- ecclesiology, how the church should work and function, especially in this issue of, of membership. A lot of confusion. Christ's design for his church is something that brought confusion very shortly after the church began. And it's something that still brings confusion to believers today. A lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of issues about the purpose of church and about what church life is really for and especially church membership. How do we put all this into practice? What is all this about? And maybe you could even think about Grace Church. Why in the world do we do what we do here? Why the membership classes? Why the membership center? Why the interview? Why the long process? What's, all, what's it all about? For a lot of people, you can trace their view of membership and even baptism to the way they think about that word church. A little bit of confusion even with that. You understand that when you get saved, when you become a Christian, you belong to God's family. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, a verse that we all cherish and love. Believers love that verse. It reminds us that we are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. We, we all understand that, that we belong. I'd say almost every Christian gets that. Almost every Christian doesn't really have a problem with that. They, they get that they're attached to God and his family. They claim that they're a part of the body of Christ, that the church of Christ. We would really call that the universal church. Universal church began at the day of Pentecost. You could read about that in Acts chapter 2. Other verses that help us see this idea of universal church, Hebrews 12, 23, at at our moment of salvation, we know we join the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Revelation 1, 5, 2, it helps us understand you become a part of the church, the universal church and the congregation of saints when you're declared righteous by the blood of Christ. Christians don't really struggle with that. They know that they belong to the whole. I think most embrace that reality. You know, they they know they belong to God's family, but they, I don't know, you probably don't use that phrase universal church much. I haven't seen any bumper stickers that say, I love my universal church. So it's interesting. You, you know you belong. You know you're a Christian. You know you belong with other Christians. You know that you're a part of the whole. But for some reason, that's where our, our understanding of church and belonging and even this idea of, of, of fellowship ultimately recognized in commitment, it's kind of where it starts to get blurry. That's where it starts to differ. And for some, it even stops. For some, there's just no sense of, of belonging. But The Bible teaches that those who belong to the universal church, they were supposed to meet regularly in local assemblies. Uh, Groups of believers are are meant to be together, and this is what we would call the local church. You, as a Christian, are supposed to be a part of the local church. Numerous benefits to belonging to a local church, one of which I think most important would be fellowship. Fellowship. The benefits that come with fellowship. We we see this local church put into practice all over the New Testament. A couple verses just to show you. Acts 14.23. They 
appoint elders at every church. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 to 20, these specific instructions for the Corinthians, but it's about when they came together as a church, when they met. Author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Being a part of a local church, it is absolutely vital. And it's, it's one of the key ways that God encourages us in our faith. Solo Christianity stems from this idea of rejecting God's plan, of rejecting God's purpose for you as a believer, that I can do this life on my own. You're rejecting God's purposes in your life. And it produces really strange thoughts and beliefs. Thoughts like this, like it's, it's not that important for me to be committed to one church. Or I don't see the problem with being a member of several churches. Or even, you know, I don't have to be a part of any church. I can listen to podcasts. I can read endless blogs. I can stay up to date with all my favorite pastors and their preaching. And again, the best part, I never have to leave my couch. I can do all this. And I don't have to tell you, the last year of our life certainly didn't help with this, did it? kind of ingrained in us this ability to, to kind of get really close to church. But I think what so many of us were missing out on, what we were lacking is what we're talking about this morning, this, this idea of connection, of fellowship. At all the elements except for fellowship. And so now more than ever, people are questioning, how important is all this fellowship? Do we need fellowship? Do we really need each other? If we say that we can get by without it, the problem is that it ignores God's instructions for his people to be committed to a local church. If if you're convinced that you don't need anybody, you're ignoring God's plan for you and this commitment to the church. Again, solo Christianity, you know, Christianity by myself, it's inadequate. You're designed by God to need other Christians to help you persevere in the faith and for you to be a source of encouragement to other believers as well. That's God's design for his church. You benefit. People pour into you. You pour into them. This is all the more important as we, I think, consider the return of Christ. That's what the author in Hebrews 10 is emphasizing there. That verse we just read. As all of us are waiting for our great hope and joy to be ultimately fulfilled, what are we to be doing We're to be building up each other. We're to be pouring into each other, finding encouragement in our faith with one another, stirring up each other, helping each other press on and persevere and and grow in these good deeds that flow from faith. We we need the body of Christ to help with that. We so badly need it. Uh, Sam Albury says, to do that well, we need the input of others. We need to have input into others. This is how God has designed his people to flourish. Outside of the local church, there is a drought of this essential equipping. Let me just give you a few benefits of the local church. Think about these benefits. There are so many. The local church exists 
to lead believers first and foremost in corporate praise and worship of God each and every time it meets. When you gather with other believers at church, you're ultimately here to worship. We, we know that. We come to, to gather to pray. We join voices in song. We love being with each other, but all of that with the purpose of leading you in worship of God. Other benefits. We need the local church for equipping. As believers, we all need to be a part of a local church to be fed the word of God. God equips, he gifts certain leaders in the local church, and their purpose is to help believers understand the truth of the Bible. There are leaders who are gifted in preaching and teaching, and you're here and you know that, and you get to listen to two pretty much every week. Uh, it's awesome. It's, it's so encouraging. It's so helpful for this equipping. Other benefits. The local church is the spot to use our spiritual gifts. At your moment of salvation, you're given a spiritual gift, and that gift is not for you. It's for the local body. It's for the church. This specific gift meant to equip and encourage others. So you have a spiritual gift that this church needs. And you are in need of the spiritual gifts that other people have at this church, at a local church. It's hugely important that we get to use our gifts. And I can't, I can't tell you how, how satisfying that is to, to, to use your gift to serve the body. Whatever that gift might be, it's, there's something about it that is so rewarding, knowing that I'm, I'm being useful for, for the kingdom the way God intended for me to be useful, to function in this body the way I'm supposed to, not trying to serve in a way that I'm not gifted, but, but doing what I'm primarily gifted to do. There's something so satisfying about that. So here's the, the point of some of those things. As we think about all these benefits, we aren't to just be attending, not to just be, you know, here to, to listen and, and then be on our way, but rather we're to be actively committed to a local church and we're to be faithfully devoted to a church so that we don't miss out on corporate worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't miss out on the teaching of the word. We don't neglect this accountability that we all need in our commitment to live obediently and in a God-honoring way, we need to be committed for the encouragement that we need to live out our faith every single day. We need this encouragement that comes from discipleship, encouragement that, that comes from just being together with like-minded individuals. There's such joy there. By the way, like-minded individuals ultimately unified by the gospel. I mean, look at this room, so many differences here, but what is our ultimate common bond? It's the gospel. Joy that comes from praying with each other and, and serving one another. Huge amount of joy and benefit that comes from being with other believers. I think that's enough to establish what we need to, to think about this morning. It's this commitment to a local church that's misunderstood today. We don't quite understand this. Fellowship isn't what it should be because there is a lack of commitment. 
Fellowship, is, it's muted. It's, it's not what it should be. It's not as deep and rich as it's meant to go. It's a confusion that's widespread and, again, showing no sign of slowing down. Our, I think our culture continues to place less and less value on commitment. I'm sure you're noticing. I'm sure you're recognizing that. Commitment is just on the decline everywhere. Nobody wants to commit to anyone or anything. Believers seem to be embracing that same view when it comes to the church, when it comes to commitment to a church. This is a a foundational part of the local church that makes zero sense for believers to be distancing themselves from. This idea of commitment. When someone becomes a Christian, uh, when they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they become a member of the body of Christ. That universal church, we talked about that. But that is absolutely not where it stops. Believers are meant to be and supposed to be baptized, and then they should also join in membership to a local church. In the New Testament, the thought of a believer who didn't get baptized is so weird. It's so bizarre. Or a believer who didn't immediately identify with a local church. It's so strange to see that. Somebody who wasn't clearly committed or or obviously belonging to this group of believers. In the New Testament, nobody even thought about being a Christian in isolation. Nobody did. It wasn't, it wasn't even a thought. So what happened? Well, I have a, a theory, a thought. Over a, a decade ago, church took a, a kind of a step, a digital step, and began to offer the online church service. It was meant to be a front door for those who were, you know, checking out the church. It was meant to be a, a, a way to visit without, physically visiting. It was meant to be helpful for those who wanted to be there, but couldn't be there if you were sick or traveling or whatever, a way for you to still be connected to the local church. It started with such good intentions. It was meant to be so practically and purposely helpful. But of course, man has a way of of twisting things. It became something else. It became a way for even for, for Christians to be there without ever actually being a, a part of it. And so the, the consumer-oriented Christian was born. This consumer Christian, he was disengaged and he, they headed for the back door and they traded traffic for the ability and freedom to listen whenever and however they wanted. You could listen to sermons while you, while you drive to work. I can... You know, I can listen to my favorite sermon while I'm hitting the treadmill, whatever. We start to think about this being church. I'm getting all the benefits of church and I'm able to multitask and do all these other things. Isn't this great? It became consumers. I read this interesting little article about church trends from a few years ago. It said this, consumer Christians or consumer-oriented Christians, they're becoming an endangered species. We're a decade plus into church online and these kinds of believers are drifting off into the background and honestly, for the most part, into kingdom irrelevance. You can't change the world if your only connection with the kingdom is through your AirPods. That group has become consumers, not contributors. 
the future of the church isn't going anywhere with consumer Christians. Friends, the mission of the church requires engagement and commitment. And when you become a member of a local church like ours, you are committing yourself to this body of believers who believe and know we're coming together for one divinely ordained purpose. These reasons, and we've highlighted them already. We're here on purpose. We're here to worship God together, to be taught the word of God, to serve one another, to to use our spiritual gifts. We come together to obey the Lord in the ordinances that he left for the church, baptism and communion. We're here for care. We're here for accountability. We're here for encouragement. We're here for that much needed fellowship that all of us desperately need. It's so hard to benefit from that when you aren't committed to one specific church. When you say no thanks to membership, to commitment, it's revealing something. It's, it's saying something about you, a, a confusion on, I think, on your part of your responsibility that God gives you to a local church. It highlights a little bit of arrogance Sam Albury again says, thinking we have no need for the local church is my way of saying I can manage without the encouragement that God wants to provide through the church. And selfishly, I'm saying, I don't want any part of encouraging those in my local church either. To make a a biblical case for membership so many parts of scripture that we could look at and talk about. If you've been through the membership class, you've, you've heard a lot of these. If you haven't, let me just briefly go through these real, real fast. To make a case, we could first just look at how the early church modeled it, membership. Some, some people say, well, it's not in the Bible. Let me show you where it is. The early church models it. They kept role in 1 Timothy 5.9. It talks about putting widows on the list. The church knew The widows in their church, they knew specifics about the people in their church. They knew who was there. They kept track of them. They knew what was going on. They knew who was in their church and who wasn't in their church. They had a list. They kept track. Uh, We can make a case for membership by talking about church leaders. 1 Peter 5 verse 2 says, Elders are called to shepherd the flock among them. The, The sheep among them. Hebrews 13, 17 called to watch over your souls. Church leaders are elders and pastors. There has to be a clearly identifiable flock for them to do that. Who, who am I responsible to? Who am I responsible for? The elders need to know that. They have to know which souls to watch over. It can't just be every visitor, every person that's come on Grace Church campus. It has to be identifiable. And practical to think that elders also would be responsible for every single believer around the world. Members of the church are also called to imitate their leader's faith. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Boy, how do you imitate the faith of someone you don't know? Imitating faith implies relationship. 
You know them. You're, you're discipled by them. You're in their house. You're, you, you serve with them. You know exactly who they are. They know you. You're able to imitate something that you see and, and know. And so many other reasons. You can see how church discipline even makes more sense when it's attached to formalized membership. It's helpful to be called out for a lack of repentance by pastors and elders that you've asked to do that for you. I'm committing to you. Help me persevere in my, you know, my, my testimony of faith. And if I start to live in an ungodly way, if I'm living in sin, call me out. And we, we see the benefits of that. These elders who keep watch over my soul see the connection. But I think the best case besides those for biblical membership are the numerous one another commands in scripture. There's almost 60. That's a lot. I think it's clear that God cares very much how we interact with each other. All these one another commands. Let me list a few. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10. Serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10. Forgive one another. Ephesians 4, 32. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2. Encourage one another. We've already seen that one. Hebrews 10, 24. Seek forgiveness from one another. Pray for one another. James 5, 16. Boy, the one another seem to demand a commitment to a local church. They seem to, to call for this. How, how do I do that stuff with random people? Awkward, isn't it? Bearing the burdens of someone that you, you don't know. Someone you're, you're passing on the sidewalk. Excuse me, do you have burdens I could bear? It's weird. Implied relationship here it implies that you know these believers well, that you're in their lives. You need to have this fellowship with them, this relationship with them. You need to know these burdens so that you can bear them or any of these other one another, so you can serve them, encourage them, be with them, whatever it is. For those of you who are our members already, you can just even ask yourself, how committed am I to this local church? Am I embracing fellowship the way it's, it, God intends? Am I involved in the lives that the Lord has intentionally put into my life? These brothers and sisters are around me. Maybe at a Bible study or part of a fellowship group. Am I, am I serving this way? Do I care about people like this? You need to know someone's strengths and weaknesses in order to know how to encourage them toward love and good deeds. It's so much easier to carry out these one another commands with people that you see regularly, who you know by name, who you trust, who you call your friends, who you know, and they clearly know you. In other words, the one another's only work consistently and effectively with the ones that you're committed to. In the New Testament, again, being a Christian and being baptized and being a member of a church, they were all linked together. Every, all of them, they were so linked together. If you tried to pull one of those out, it would have just made no sense. And yet that's precisely what we see happening today. These things that belong together, we're, we're, we're looking at them individually, but they belong together. When we're given new life in Christ through the gospel, 
The first thing we're called to do is identify our new relationship with God in baptism. And we should also want to identify with God's people in membership. That's why membership and baptism go hand in hand. That's what you see here. It's, it's one thing. These two go together. I want to identify with Christ. Obviously, I want to identify with his people. I want to do these together. So closely linked. And as we talked about the increased fellowship that comes with commitment or membership, I think it's helpful to just drill down on baptism for a minute and see why this commitment naturally begins with baptism. The necessity for every believer to be baptized, to identify with Christ and to identify with his people, again, all linked together. So let me just talk for a few minutes about baptism. It's It's one of the two commands that Jesus left for the church, expecting the church to do it. Totally anticipating that the church would do that. It doesn't seem complicated or confusing in the New Testament, but that hasn't stopped churches from practicing this command in a whole bunch of different ways. You can, and don't do this now, but you can do a search for baptisms and baptism fails and find a whole bunch of really comical stuff. Uh, I've seen kids do cannonballs into the baptismal, uh, really splash zone. It's pretty awesome. Uh, My favorite, you know, pastors just kind of struggling to get that guy back up out of the water. And of course, when both pastor and, you know, candidate both get baptized, that's the best one. Uh, There's a lot of, if you're bored or just, you know, need a, a moment of encouragement, baptism fails. It'll really, it'll cheer you up. But but baptism is, is something that our church practices, and, and we do that here because of what the Bible says. If you start making your way to Romans chapter 6, it's just going to be a text that will help us this morning. And even while you turn there, let me just say, we can't exhaust all there is to say about baptism. Can't cover the whole thing, but... I hope that you see baptism is something that's intended for the church and how baptism also uniquely attaches you to that local church. I want you to know what baptism is and why you, Christian, should get baptized if you haven't. Let's just start here. Baptism is a picture. It's a sign. Signs give information. They, they represent something. They, they tell you where you're at or, you know, they tell you that something's dangerous. They can they tell you how clean that, you know, favorite taco place you go to is or isn't. Baptism's like that. It's a sign. It, it, it points to something else. Again, we must understand baptism is not primarily about you. Yes, you're involved, but it's a picture of what Jesus has done. Baptism points Everybody who's watching to Jesus. It's a sign that points to the gospel. And almost every Sunday night at the evening service, we have a, a few people who get baptized. The pastor, you know, comes out in that water first and pretty awesome white robe. And we, we get out there and then the people come out and they read their testimony. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we put them all the way in the water and bring them back up and And that's kind of the picture. So how and what is that a sign of? What's that pointing to? Our pastor says baptism is a physical picture of the death burial and of the new birth that occurs when one puts their faith in the Savior. It's an object lesson. 
It's a visual representation of a spiritual reality. He says that's the meaning of baptism. This is what it is. You could say it's an outward sign of an inward change. I think that's helpful. Something's happened on the inside of this person, and this is the outward way to show it. I want people to know what's happening. When you get baptized and you declare to the watching world and to the church that there's been a change in your life, you want to show them what's happened. And what is that? Well, Romans chapter 6, we'll start in verse 3. It says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It can be a little confusing to think about being united with with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, but that's what this is. Paul helps us understand that exact relationship right here. Now in Romans 6, baptize doesn't mean water baptism. It just means what that word always means, immersed. Uh, immersed. We're immersed, Paul says, into Christ. We've died with Christ and we're buried with him and we rise with him. We're immersed into Jesus and it's water baptism that symbolizes that spiritual reality. It's a picture of what Jesus has done. It's a picture of what the gospel, the good news of Christ has done in your life. It's a, a portrait of the change that's, that's taken place in your heart. Perfectly shows that. Listen, G- Jesus died and was buried and rose physically so that you could have spiritual life in him. Verse 6 says, our old self has died. We've died to our sin. The old life that was only concerned about me, that old life that only cared about you know, my life, that old life that loved to exchange the truth about God for a lie, that sinful nature that was enslaved to sin. This has changed. There, there's, there's been this newness. Here in Romans, Paul says that as a believer, you've died to all that, you've been buried, and you've been raised to live this new life. Even verse 4, you, you've died and are, are buried in order that you might rise to new life, walking in newness of life. I'm, I'm not only alive, I'm not only spiritually alive now, but I'm living a whole new way. So much of that is what I'm saying when I'm getting baptized. I've been saved by Christ. I have spiritual life where I was once dead and now I'm living in a whole new way. You could look at so many passages of scripture to help with that, but Romans 12 might be a good one, just living as that living sacrifice for God, not comforted to the world or sinful desires. I'm just living acceptable to God. That's a helpful place to look, but I'm living like Christ uh, I'm living a life pursuing obedience to Christ and, and his word. And so when a person's baptized, they can say all of that. They are saying all of that. They, they, they say Jesus died and was buried and he rose physically and he did that for my sin. He paid my debt. He satisfied God's wrath for me on the cross and he did that so I could have eternal life. 
What does all this have to do with water baptism? Well, going under the water is that, it's that picture of our death, of our burial. Coming up out of the water, it's, it's that picture of this newness of life. It's the picture of the change that's already happened on the inside. This is precisely why we believe that you must be immersed into the water. We, we do it that way, not only because that's what the word means, but also it's the best way to picture that the spiritual change that's happened in your life. Again, baptism, not about you, points to Jesus, a picture of his death. Going under the water is your way of saying, I'm immersed into Christ. I'm with him. I'm united with him. As he died and was buried, I too have died to my sinful self and I've risen to newness of life. So it's this symbol to show there's been a change on the inside, points to Christ, to your union with Christ. Maybe just one other text, why do it? Why get baptized? The Great Commission is certainly helpful, Matthew 28. Jesus said to his disciples, all authority, verse 18, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here we have a a great reason to baptize and then to be baptized. Obviously, Jesus commands it. Some of his last words to his disciples before he ascends back to heaven are, are these. We have this command. Make disciples. And then mark disciples in baptism and then mature disciples, teaching them more and more of what Christ has commanded. This is Jesus' plan for the growth of the church. Do you see it? Make disciples, mark them, and then mature them. And we see it put right into practice. Acts chapter 2, that's what the apostles are out doing. They're preaching the gospels. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2 Peter's preaching. Look what it says. Now, when they heard this, the gospel, they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 41 says, so those who receive his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They received Peter's call to repent. They're made disciples. They receive his word to believe in Christ. They're saved. And then they're immediately marked as disciples. Why? So that they could begin maturing as disciples. We haven't left our topic of fellowship. Let let me make the connection for us. Being marked as a disciple, I believe, is, is, is so helpful to other disciples other Christians, to other followers of Christ. You get to hear the testimony of Christ's work in that person's life. You get to hear their testimony of faith and nothing brings unity like the gospel. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, talks about this very thing, about this unity. In their church, Gentiles and Jews could not have been more different Yet Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Incredible to be united like that despite all those differences. Like they hated each other. And yet, Immediately, they shared this common bond, this unity that only the gospel can bring. No greater common bond. And when we're made disciples and marked as disciples, we get to mature as disciples. We get to do this together. Jesus wanted his disciples to do this so that they would know you too are following Christ. And now there's this fellowship that comes with that. We get to sit under the teaching of the word together and we take communion with each other and we serve one another. We use our spiritual gifts for each other. It's so helpful to know who's in and who's not. So helpful. Of course, the same is true for us, isn't it? I know you're a believer. I've heard your testimony. You've shared it. Well, Jesus told his disciples at the Great Commission to make more disciples, to to mark them, to mature them. In baptism, you're marked, you're identified as a believer. And and Jesus told his disciples to do it this way, to, to baptize new believers in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus wanted these new believers to be identified with this particular declaration of the new relationship with God that now exists. Let me just talk about this for a second. When you stand in the waters of baptism, you stand declaring this new relationship with God. You're identifying that you're a part of his family. You now have a relationship that you didn't before. You now have a relationship with the father that you didn't before. A relationship with the son that wasn't there before. A a relationship with the Holy Spirit that wasn't there before. All three so important. John Piper says, There is a holy appeal to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be present in this act of baptism and make it true and real in what it says about their work in redemption. There's no salvation without the Father, without the Son, without the Holy Spirit. When we call on their name, we depend upon them and honor them and say that this act is because of them and by them and for them. Baptism is not about you. It's the Father's plan for redemption in your life. It's about Christ and his gospel, and it's the Spirit's work to save you. And again, it's so helpful for the body to hear this and to know this and to say, to hear you say, I'm, I'm with you. I want to identify with Christ in this baptism. I want you to know the new spiritual reality that's here. And I I want to be with you. Who should get baptized? Well, I hope with our text already, you know that this answer is Christians. Those who have already been made disciples should be marked as disciples. If this is you, then baptism is for you. You need to identify with Christ and his people. And at Grace Church, we call it a believer's baptism. 
believe it's baptism for someone who's already been saved. Baptism doesn't change anything. You're already a believer. It doesn't give you that new relationship with God. That's already there. It's purely to point to Christ. And I also think so helpful for the church to hear your testimony. A way for you to say to the church, I also am following Christ. Baptism so important. We, we don't baptize babies here, not only because it seems really scary to dunk a baby, but way more importantly, because baptism is for believers. Baptism is, is for those who, who've embraced the gospel. Salvation's not because of parents, not because of my last name. It's not because of my status or, or where we live. We're saved by the gospel. We're made disciples by the gospel and we should be marked disciples as disciples after that change has already taken place. We baptize those who are truly saved and off topic, but maybe helpful to say, if you thought you were saved and got baptized when you were younger and then later in life, you, you really got saved, you may be wondering, do I need to get re-baptized? The answer is you need to get baptized because the first one wasn't a believer's baptism. And if that's you, I, I want to encourage you to, to think about that and, and be made a disciple. Know that you're made first and then be marked as one. You need to get baptized. If you're not sure, then you need to figure out why you're not sure. But if you are, I just want to say, what are you waiting for? Identify with Christ and then identify with his people and enter into this rich relationship that is found in the local church. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's, it's so simple. We know that his commandments are here by necessity for our lives and that these are here for our good. Such blessing that comes with obedience. Belonging to Christ and, and belonging to his people. Such joy here. Such joy that comes with this commitment of belonging here, this commitment to be here in this fellowship. And it's, a, it's something that's truly supernatural. You can't find anything like this anywhere else. I don't care what gym you belong to or what book club you're a part of. It is not as rich as this. It is not as rich as what God intended it to be. And that fellowship can't be what it needs to be without commitment to each other. It's made clear in baptism. It begins there and it leads to rich fellowship with God's people. This is part of God's design for your growth in faith. I don't know how else to say it. You've been saved and you've been made to need the people around you, even in this very room. They have something that God intentionally gave them for you. And the same is true for you. you. You have something that this church desperately needs and you can't fulfill that through a computer screen. You can't taste that. You can't have that if you're not here. You're not gonna benefit the way you should if you're here once every six weeks to keep your name off the follow-up call. It's not, we'll call you, by the way. It's not going to work. You're going to be missing out. You need to be committed to the local church. You've been made a disciple. Hopefully you've been marked as one in baptism. If not, 
Let's help you get baptized. But it's time to mature as a believer. And the best way we taste that, the best way we have that is through this rich fellowship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of fellowship. We want to enjoy these benefits of the fellowship that's here. The benefits of true fellowship intended by you to be in our life. Lord, thank you first for saving us, but then putting us into a church that we might continue to grow. We're so grateful for how you speak to us through your word. God, how you help us to understand what the church is for, how it's so clearly to our benefit. Hope more than anything, we rejoice this morning because of what your gospel has done in our lives. That's the most important. But Lord, we we see then too how important the necessity to continue to grow in our commitment to the church. Help us to see that, the importance of of belonging, of commitment, of membership. Father, I, I pray that you would grow us in our love for other believers that you have divinely placed into our lives here at this church. God, help us to benefit from from all these joys that come with belonging, all all the joy that comes with being a part of the body. God, I pray for the rest of the morning, pray for our second hour, Lord, for Dr. Lawson as he preaches. Father, ask that you would keep our hearts tender, that you would help us to listen, to hear, to put into practice, Lord. It's so good to be at your church this morning. Pray all these things in the name of King Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Okay, I just want to make a few recommendations. If you want to read more about the church, I know only the first few of us can see this, but a great book that I encourage everybody to read. It's pretty new by Sinclair Ferguson. It's called Devoted to God's Church. Really helpful. Also, you notice that it's not like one of those massive books. Uh, I I try to only recommend shorter books, but this is a really helpful book. Helps you understand a little bit more of the the benefits and the function of the local church. Our our bookstore, uh, I just took the last copy. So there will be more this week. Um, and if anybody's really dying to read it, I, I'd love to give it to you. Um, I'm going to dismiss you so that you can get out of here and enjoy some fellowship with each other. But if you have questions about anything this morning, I'm happy to stick around. I th- think they're going to want to open this up for the live stream service here in a little bit. But happy to answer your questions, uh, but just don't want to subject all of you to, to the individual questions, okay? Thanks for being here. You guys are dismissed.